0: Go behind the scenes and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Stuff I Don't Want You To Know is brought to you by
2: Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited time deals on Select Next Gen Alienware Gaming Tech.
0: New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential.
2: Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on Select Gaming
3: This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national
2: sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
0: From UFOs to ghosts and government cover-ups, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't
2: want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt, and I'm Ben, and we've got Noel Brown with us, super producer Noel Brown. He's just hanging out over there. Uh, hey, are you are you making beats, Noel? No. Okay. All right. You better not be. What's Noel's nickname today, Matt? His name is Flashing Light.
0: Noel, Flashing Lights, Flashing Lights, Brown. No, just one. Flash just light. one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Let us not get sued. Uh, Matt, before we jump into today's show. Uh, Let's, let's have a little bit of a, of a story time, if you will. Absolutely. All right. So this comes from a commencement speech I heard a long, long time ago, and it may be familiar to some of you listeners out there. So in the days before refrigeration in the northeastern United States, there were these companies that would, uh, transport ice via trucks. So they would drive up to Canada or wherever the next big batch of ice was. They would cut the blocks of ice. They would throw hay over those blocks, and they would drive back down to Boston and New York and other cities in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, they'd lose a lot of ice along the way, but people loved ice. So they did uh, they did pretty well for themselves. They became an industry, a big industry. And then the invention of refrigeration, right? A magic little box uh, within which you can place food, water that's cold enough to freeze. You can make ice on your own. This was a revolutionary thing for pretty much everybody. It made things safer, it made things more convenient, it made uh, Canada just a, a fingertip away. Everyone, that is, except for the ice trucking companies, and the ice trucking industry, uh, could have done a couple things, could have started embracing refrigeration or, uh, maybe building refrigerators, something like that. Mm-hmm. But what they did instead was invest in faster trucks, different types of hay. Uh, and what they did instead of working with refrigeration companies was try to shut them down by any legal means necessary. Because and this, they were a threat. Yes, because they were a threat to a status quo. This is a tale as old as time. Uh, we see it often that companies spend more time investing in maintaining their status quo rather than innovating it. And that, by way of uh, <laughs> a circuitous uh, family circus style comic strip route,
2: brings us to today's topic. Net neutrality, the Internet, how much control should a government have over Mm -hmm. the Internet and people's access to it? And how should companies be able to treat this precious thing that all of us now rely on so heavily Mm -hmm. that we all need access to, arguably?
0: Right yeah uh, how much control should a business have over the internet how much control should a government have over the internet why is net neutrality just the keyword the thought terminating cliche of net neutrality why is it such a big deal why do, why do people care to answer that we have to look at the history of the internet
2: first That's right. We have to go all the way back to 1957. And by the way, a lot of the information you're going to be hearing right here comes from our buddy Jonathan Strickland, who was on our show not long ago. Mm -hmm. You might remember him. You can find him over at Tech Stuff and Forward Thinking. Thank you, sir. Yeah. So way back in 1957, the U.S. was pretty terrified that the USSR could launch a missile at North America because they launched Sputnik, this satellite that they shot up into space, and everybody over here just went, oh boy, they can do that? What else can they do? That's a little scary. Yeah,
0: they said they were sitting around probably eating pizza or something, and one of them said, oh man, space is pretty far away. (laughs) If they could get something
2: in space, could they get it in Washington? Exactly. Could they? Could it hit my house? This led President Dwight D. Eisenhower to create the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, in 1958, as a direct response to this launching of Sputnik. And the purpose of this agency was to give the U.S. some kind of technological advantage over other countries. Like to be the leading edge in all of these technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and one important part of ARPA's mission was computer science. Because these were, this is a brand new field that was emerging. And, how, you know, how can we use these machines to become even better
0: right yeah Uh, arpa which is a a predecessor beginner of what uh, is now known today as darpa and a couple other agencies Uh, arpa itself was the think tank for mad science and one Mm -hmm. of those most mad science things at the time was uh was the computer now computers in the 1950s you may remember, some of you, and then some of you may just remember seeing these on television or something. But point is, computers in the 1950s were not Mac Airbooks. They no. were enormous. Size of rooms, size of buildings. They could only read magnetic tape or uh, punch cards. Uh, shout out to IBM in World War II. <laughs> Google it if you'd like to learn more, and they could not network at all. Like the haggard anti-heroes in action films and <laughs> westerns, uh, these
2: computers worked alone. I only work by myself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a huge and important point here, that computers were self-involved things. The, you, you couldn't even imagine that all of these computers could talk to one another one day in the future back in the day, but a few people could. Now, ARPA wanted to change this. With the help of a company called Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, they networked four of these computers with four different operating systems, OSs, working together in this thing that they called ARPANET. Ah, uh, the
0: ARPA network, one mm-hmm. of the first networks. Uh, let's go ahead and also, while we're here, uh correct the commonly misquoted Al Gore thing. Okay, uh, I like the idea of one person inventing the Internet. It's hilarious and impossible. Uh, but he said he took the initiative in it, usually taken to mean that as a senator, he pushed for funding of that. Mm-hmm. So there you go, Al. Stop writing the hate mail. We get it. <laughs> I'm kidding. Al Gore is probably a nice person. He is not, to my knowledge, written to our show. Uh but he doesn't really come up in this because, of course, one person could never invent the Internet. There's already so many people involved just to get to ARPA. But the evolution continues because in 1973, some of these people, engineers, started thinking, could we connect ARPANET to other networks? Uh, they started with PRNET, the Packet Radio Network. And the idea here, Matt, was that they could send data across uh, radio waves. Transmitters, receivers, Mm -hmm. rather than phone lines. And it took a few years, but in 1976,
2: they connected these networks. And then they said, we need more. In 1977, they joined with the satellite network, which called, what do you think, what do you think that's called, listeners? Yep, it's SatNet. Mm -hmm. And the engineers called this connection between the multiple networks, inter-networking, or the internet. And now we come to, uh,
0: let's fast forward to 1990. The closest you can get to one single person inventing, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, the Internet, is a guy named Tim Berners-Lee, uh, who created a system to simplify web navigation. This is what we call the World Wide Web. And the Internet and the World Wide Web are different things that are often confused. Now, Matt, uh, you and I... At different times for a show called Stuff of Genius, Mm -hmm. uh, we did, we did a little bit of history about this guy, right?
2: Yeah, we did. He's fascinating. Great story. Uh, check out Stuff of Genius Mm -hmm. on the How Stuff Works YouTube channel.
0: Yeah. And, uh, Jonathan might even narrate that episode. We've got a couple of different narrators here. You were one.
2: Yeah, recently I've been on there a lot. Yeah? Your episodes are popping up? It's a, it's a bit
0: strange, but it's cool. Check it out, especially if you have kids who want to learn about little-known oh, yeah. inventors. Uh, it's a show that I wrote for a long time. You did voice on. Um, Tyler did some editing. Yeah, our, our buddy, the producer for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, did the editing. It's kind of like a... M- almost Monty Python esque. Yeah, sure. Little, little cutouts yeah. running around.
2: good stuff. Yeah. But back to the history of the internet. Yes. Yeah.
0: So from here's here's uh, some really neat stuff. Uh, the recent history. Internet usage from 2000 to 2014. Internet usage skyrocketed, Matt. From uh, almost 361 million internet users across the world mm-hmm. in 2000 to get this. Three, just over three billion. So three billion, thirty-five million, seven hundred forty-nine, three hundred forty people. Jeez, so, uh, seven hundred forty-nine thousand, three hundred forty people. What's the what's the
2: growth rate there? Do you know?
0: Uh, let's see. I could get out some paper, but you're good at math. What do you
2: think it is? Just give me a second here. Let me just uh, carry the one. That's seven hundred and forty-one percent. A growth rate of
0: 741%. That is... Bonkers. And for those of you who like specific numbers, that uh, Internet usage stat from 2000 was 360,985,492. Uh, those are just estimates, of course. But there's something else that's weird here. Uh, as of 2013, at least, the Internet remained a largely English language domain.
2: Yeah, that's right. 59% of the Internet's content is in English. Only 27% of internet users speak English. <laughs> Isn't that a little weird?
0: Uh, yeah, that is, that is strange. And I, I think there's a, I don't know. I think there's a disconnect between those stats, but we'll have to look into it mm-hmm. some more because let me get to the part I'm sure everybody's waiting for. And that is the part where we complain about <laughs> the internet in the United States. Friends, Romans, Canadians. Countrymen, anyone who is not in the United States uh, may not be as aware of this as you are in the U.S., but compared to uh, other countries, South Korea.
2: Oh, man, I mean, South Korea, definitely. Mm-hmm,
0: uh, the United States ha- is, a- every customer in the United States, with a few exceptions, is paying way more for way mm-hmm. less, and uh, part of this is because uh, cable companies need uh, new infrastructure, but another part is that when, you know, uh, when you're a small town that says, well, we don't want to participate, mm-hmm. uh, we want to build our own broadband, then all of a sudden the cable company that refused your service, or the telecom rather, uh, is right up there on Main Street in the courthouse telling the judge you shouldn't be allowed to do it. And that's something we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about this net neutrality Mm -hmm. stuff and I want to be clear here, I think Matt, you and I should both be clear, for a lot of people including us, the internet whatever that means to you is more than a pastime. Oh yeah. It's a primary source of information for a lot of people, the days of reading microfiche are done Mm -hmm. uh, for for a lot of people it's a, in our case it's a career.
2: Yeah, it's what we do every day, everything we do goes onto the internet.
0: So clearly you and I and and Noel as well, we have a bias of sorts because we want people to be able to go onto the internet, find whatever they want, uh and well, okay, find any whatever legal stuff they want. Yes. And uh we want we want it to be as easy as possible for uh you guys to check out our show because you know we're very fortunate that you would take your free time to check out this crazy thing that we're doing. So we love the Internet.
2: Oh, yeah. And by the way, we might have to have a little conversation later about you spending all your time with us. I mean, what are you thinking? We appreciate it, but man. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I
1: think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. the six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall. And the reinvention of an American icon.
0: Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty
1: much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining
0: me today is Alison Bree.
1: Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.
0: Don't listen to Matt. Hang out as long as you want. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, so that's, that's some recent history. That's a quick and dirty here. Um, and now the internet, this amazing thing allows you to find almost anything. If you look hard enough, one fee to your ISP lets you go anywhere online that you legally want to go. Uh, so, but how long could this last?
2: I I just want to say I love that one fee to your ISP. It really felt like you were about to bust into a larger rhyme.
0: Oh, hey, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the poetry just finds you. That's
2: right. That's right.
0: But, yeah, how long could this last?
2: Well, for not long, apparently, Uh, because the current debate over neutrality, it's framed up as a fight between big business And big government, right? These are the two opposing sides that we are presented with, at least if you watch the news. Right. And the supporters of each side, they like to claim that their team represents the true interests of the common American man. But how much of that is true, Ben? This is that thing that we've talked about before, the Hegelian dialect, where you've got two opposing sides and you're only really – you're supposed to only be allowed to choose one. But really there's much more middle ground there. And uh, it's also then you you call Chomsky's framing debate. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, both
0: of what these are really are um, uh, false dichotomies or the idea, I guess, what you're talking about um, specifically is the – The idea that people are only allowed to choose between two things. The framing debate is more like there are things that are not allowed to be in the conversation. Yes. So, um, you can have a framed debate with more than two sides. Mm -hmm. But our question, our, our question here today is, is really about this, uh, this whole debate over net neutrality and, why are we doing this? Well, because uh, there was a recent ruling by the FCC, or Federal Communications Commission, uh, that changes the game.
2: Yeah, on February 26th of this year, the FCC approved the Open Internet Order. It's a 300-page ruling that most importantly reclassifies the Internet under Title II, It's the same power that's used to regulate phone lines, phone uh, companies, and how they use that infrastructure.
0: Right, and it ultimately comes from, or originally comes from, I should say, uh, some laws regarding railroads, Mm -hmm. which you can learn more about if you uh, check out our video this week uh, where we actually have an interview with Jonathan. He's our our go-to guru for tech stuff. And, uh, this, this, in, we'll talk about this open internet order a little bit later in more depth, but, uh, at the top level, here's what it did. It requires more transparency on the part of your ISPs or telecoms. It prohibits blocking websites and what they call unreasonable discrimination, which is a slippery, slippery term, legally speaking. And also, and this is a huge part, it allows municipalities to offer a public option for their broadband access. Now, that's huge. Mm-hmm.
2: In places like where I live, pretty close to our office, yeah. you. I think the only two options right now are AT&T and Comcast, which I use. And if there was a, a public option, man, sure. I would hop on that.
0: I would only do it if it were a better deal. But... Uh, See,
2: but I... <sighs> I think I would do it. This is uh, maybe this is playing my hand too early, but I think I would do it out of, I don't know, some principle. Uh (laughs) And, I, you know, Uh I've been I've been a customer of Comcast for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, arguably they've treated me pretty well. But, man, I've paid out the wazoo for that stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so the situation that people were finding themselves in, and we've all read reports about this in the United States, was that there would be towns or communities that were kind of in a rural area, and the telecom that had blocked them off in its territory Mm -hmm. would say, we're not going out there, it's not worth our investment to make that connection. But then, when those communities tried to build their own broadband, they said no, no, no. Yeah, no. all of a sudden we're up in court. So, on the offset, this sounds like stuff every everybody would like, right? Mm-hmm. Even whatever your ideological bent is, I think we can all get behind the idea that if a group of people wants to build their own thing for themselves, it. it it seems fairly fairly cut and dry. Uh, however, that's just one piece. That's not the piece that's being, um, I guess, quoted the most. What's being quoted the most is this idea of the open carrier title, common carrier, uh, Title two stuff. And mm-hmm. we have an op-ed uh, that sh- objects to uh, some of this ruling.
2: It's from Jeffrey A. Mann. He had an op-ed in Wired. And it says, quote, Title II reclassification also allows the FCC to impose a general conduct or catch-all provision. Under this standard, the FCC asserts its authority over literally anything else that, in the eyes of three commissioners, seems unreasonable. As former Commissioner Robert McDowell has pointed out, reasonable is perhaps the most litigated word in American history.
0: Which is a valid, valid point. Uh, So... Jeffrey Mann goes on to say that now that ISPs are regulated under this Title II thing as common carriers, uh, the Federal Trade Commission can't enforce pr- consumer protection laws against them anymore. So, uh. this is not all, you know, this is not all good guys, bad guys kind of stuff. But here's, here are the
2: big questions. Who actually owns the internet? Uh, it's, it's tough to say, right? Yeah. Is it the people who own the fiber optic wires that go underneath the oceans and throughout, you know, the continents?
0: Right. Is it the, uh, most successful online companies like Google, for instance? Yeah. The ones who make all the money there. Is it you and your friends? Who owns the internet? Uh we do know that the people regulating it there's an organization called ICANN, uh isn't that precious? Yeah. Uh, it stands for the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Uh this is a nonprofit that uh coordinates maintains name of names of the internet. It's mm-hmm. the reason www.howstuffworks.com is just www.howstuffworks.com. Or even stuff they don't <laughs> want you to know dot com. Uh, they they have a contract with the Department of Commerce to do this till twenty fifteen. Enormously controversial. People have
2: beef with I I love that name so much. Yeah, and you you made a, a little joke about it, but it is a it is a cute name. I can.
0: Yeah, I would totally. I I would totally. Name a company I can if it hasn't been covered. So now let's talk about the definition of net neutrality, which, you know, usually when you hear a word having a definition, you expect it'll be one thing. But this has a very different uh, nuance depending upon whom you're talking to. Who you're talking to. I can never figure out who and whom.
2: Yeah, it's it's a question that will remain throughout time, Ben. We speak American English. It's fine. Everything's
0: a verb. And <laughs> if you just make the same mistake consistently, it becomes
2: the rule. That's right. It will be put into Webster's little book that he wrote sometime mm-hmm. a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Who knows? The definition of net neutrality changes depending on which one of these sides uh, you happen to exist for... For businesses, Mm -hmm. uh, they would say that net neutrality is the freedom of businesses to grow and innovate without the hampering of any kind of invasive regulation from a government. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, the governments would argue that net neutrality is the freedom of Internet users to create, access, play, work, and live online without the hampering of invasive or manipulative business practices.
0: Ah, okay. So we've got two groups each saying the other one is the bad guy.
2: Yes. And that net neutrality, <laughs> like kind of co-opting that that term for their own means. Right.
0: And if you look at what the FCC is saying or the common party line, we hear about net neutrality or open internet, which is the uh, phrase they've been using more and more. This is defined as requiring all Internet service providers to allow users or customers equal access to legal content and applications or apps mm-hmm. uh, instead of doing a couple things that are possible now uh, like requiring users or other businesses to pay extra for faster speed which is a glass half full way to phrase the actual danger and the actual danger is that users or other businesses website owners would be throttled if they refuse to pay for a premium service uh, but this wouldn't just be uh, a slowdown or a speed up on your internet connection. There would be the question of what you could access at all, right?
2: Yeah, the, the, one of the biggest problems would be if these ISPs decided to start carving up the internet the way if you have a cable subscription right now. There are different packages that you can buy and you have to pay a little bit more money if you want to mm-hmm. increase and get a couple more channels. Like mm-hmm. if you want the sports package, then hey, you can get that. And in this case, it would be, let's say you, you've got the basic Google package, mm-hmm. but then you want to add on the Reddit. So right. package or whatever.
0: So you get Reddit premium. You get Google Premium Reddit. Fa- Google Premium Fastlane now with Reddit.
2: Yes, extra blast. Uh, CNN. Oh or yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, which is a possibility. There's also the possibility that there would be uh, no access to some websites at all. Maybe maybe somebody had a website that was like down with. ISPs or something, and you would never know it because you would no. not be allowed
2: to see it. You have to pay $99 a month just to see that website.
0: Now, uh, And, of course, the ACLU uh, predictably has a big problem with this because their concern is monopolization. They say that most people get their high-speed Internet access from only a few telecoms, Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, Time Warner, Cox, and Charter. Uh, they say that these other smaller groups and there are a few uh, have to rely on the big guys, the big companies to serve their customers. When we send and receive data over the net we expect these companies to transfer that from one end of the network to the other not to analyze or manipulate it
2: and for a while the FCC had protections in place to stop these providers from doing that. However in January 2014 a federal court said that the FCC had overstepped its bounds. But, while it also said the FCC could impose new and potentially even stronger rules, it took a while. But in, uh, it, they just did it, right? 2015, I think? Right, yeah. February 26th. Awesome! So, uh, well, we'll see. I would feel I would
0: feel much better about that ruling if I had read it. It's true, guys. Uh this is a podcast on something that we have never read, which we weird. usually I, avoid.
2: Yeah, we usually read things. Why why So,
0: let's let's save that part. Okay. Uh let's save that part for a second because we should say that this but this idea of net neutrality, this idea of using uh, governmental powers to prevent monopolies of cable providers turning into even worse businesses yeah. uh, also runs the risk of creating this Orwellian Big Brother Internet. Like, uh, could the question is, could government control the net be worse than an oligarchist corporate regime? Hmm. I mean – Anonymity could be gone completely. The government might not allow certain websites to be accessed, just like in our other hypothetical thing with governments. But there's an important point about that that we'll also make at the end. the question now is, why does it matter? Who should control the game? Which, if any side government, business, etc., cetera, uh, represents the interest of the common people. You know, Jane Doe out there or Jane Nguyen out there just uh, searching for uh, the closest barbecue place. We've all been there. It's <laughs> desperate times, you know, or John P. Walthopter, which I don't think is real last oh, name man. out uh, out there uh, trying to navigate on his phone. Like what who
2: represents these people? Well, let's go with option A. Okay. Let's say just for argument's sake that the internet service providers own the internet.
0: Okay, the businesses then. Well, they're not perfect, right? They've done some uh they've done some pretty shady stuff, right? It well,
2: is... yeah. One of the things they did is well, they do. They tend to have these mono let's let's I guess we'll just call it monopolistic practices. Okay. They tend to exist in areas where they're really the only choice. And there aren't many other there aren't a, there really isn't competition in a lot of places.
0: And part of that is it's proven that the leadership of these companies has, in some cases, agreed to uh, rope off turf for each other.
2: Well, yeah, especially as they're buying up other companies, as they're mm. getting larger and larger,
0: which and, drives opponents crazy, which, again, is monopolistic. But the uh the legal basis of this uh hasn't hasn't resulted in these companies not doing it and then, you know, some people who are supporters would say, Well, that's you have to be able to guarantee a predicted income of some sort. So there's money coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh speaking of money, they've also been accused of unethical billing practices. Uh you'll see these stories pop up online all the time. Someone says, I just found out I was getting charged, you know, 10 to 15 dollars a month for a modem that I have never touched or seen or something Uh, like that. You know, that's anecdotal, but we hear those stories all the time.
2: We hear them and they, we have experienced them. Me. So. (laughs) Uh they're they go through constant litigation to make sure that their customers can't get around some of the regulations and rules that they have sure. when you're a customer, like improving their situation, they ban ban broadband. Uh, they, like
0: uh municipal like we talked about earlier, yeah. yeah. And
2: they'll they'll use data capping so you can only use X amount of the Internet.
0: Ah, uh, and data capping on some applications but not on others. Mm-hmm. So if you watch something via your Xbox. Depending on which app you use, it may or may not count toward your data cap. Uh, this is, this is something that is still being like handled in courts. People are talking about, uh, how, how data capping translates. What do people actually get when you're paying for it? What is the expectation, right? Uh, they also, of course, throttle, have throttled access to websites or services they don't like. Um, one of the big things we always hear about this is Netflix, right? Yeah,
2: there there is a uh, a correlation there.
0: Oh, so I guess that means that clearly
2: the government is the best uh, watchman or gatekeeper of the Internet, right? Absolutely. I mean, they're already watching everything that happens on the Internet, right? Yes. From, from that data center in Utah. That's a good point to say, yes. Uh,
0: let's introduce it this way. The U.S. government in particular is... Is no angel, and that is not is not a conspiracy theory. It's not some uh, weird, overly dramatic thing to say. The United States government is monitoring everybody. Yeah, like that old gif where it's Gary Oldman screaming, "Everyone!" That's <laughs> what they're doing.
2: Yeah, if you've got privacy somewhere and you think that it exists, they're invading it. Uh, you can just assume that Uncle Sam knows where you're going. What you ate for lunch, probably. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, on that credit card receipt and transaction that went through. And, you know, they just know about your phone's location data. And that's all they need to know.
0: For, uh, to, to tell where someone's going, the phone's location, uh, data can be enormously revealing. There's some, uh, fantastic reporting done recently about, uh, law enforcement cell tower cloning which is another another way to get this information. So, so we're worried about corporations tracking us, but uh we're worried about a government invasion of people's personal rights that already occurred more than a year ago. It, it already the cat is out of the bag. Uh the Badgers out of the can. I made that one up. So mm. uh, also there's a possibility of burying. This is a little bit more conspiratorial. The possibility of burying a a story that they don't care for, mm. suppressing a conversation. You know, what if too many people start saying, hey, the Federal Election Commission is kind of weird. Then uh, <laughs> oh, they could say, oh, or they say, oh, uh, Trayvon Martin uh, was uh, shot a year ago today which uh, happened just very recently as we record this. And I'd like to thank our Twitter listener who hmm. pointed this out, because I thought that was uh, an astute point.
2: Or whichever government shill posted that white and gold dress picture.
0: <laughs> right, which I, I still haven't read about. But what are the people who believe that the government is actively manipulating what goes viral, what is and is not buried, believe that uh that picture of a dress was part of it, or those llamas on Twitter mm-hmm. were part of a distraction. Now I think that is possible if only because we don't know very much about a lot of social
2: media algorithms. You know, Ben, by denying it you automatically become a target. Of what? Of the uh the ire of people who would believe these things. You know, I would love to know
0: if it is true. I, w- I really would. I think it's compl- I think it's possible. I do think it's possible to control uh, through those bottlenecks what people see. Facebook spends a lot of time. Just Facebook spends a lot of time doing that.
2: Or or it could be that this is all completely random. Maybe. Just one person found that dress, and when they posted it, the next mm-hmm. person said, oh, no, it's this way, and they mm-hmm. were fascinated. And then our populace is just more interested in that dress than whether or not their Internet is going to be available to them and how and how much they're going to have to pay for it.
0: Now, if you ask me, Matt, that is a much more disturbing possibility. Uh But, okay, speaking of disturbing, Let's get to the good stuff. Matt Frederick, what is the stuff they don't want you to know about the Internet?
2: Well, the first thing is that it is extremely difficult to be completely, truly anonymous when accessing the Internet in any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, check out our, te- our Tech Stuff episode that we specifically focused on this.
0: Yeah, how to uh, access the Internet an- anonymously. Yeah,
2: or just it's a fairy tale. You really can't do it, even if you're using the Onion Router or tour because yeah. uh,
0: it was developed by the government. By the government, you'll say. Well you can you can do it, but it is just incredibly inconvenient. It's spy stuff mm-hmm. to the point of dressing differently in a nondescript costume, going to a computer you've never used before at a public place, not carrying a cell phone, and then never touching that computer again.
2: Yeah, if you want to go full Ed Snowden with it, you can. Um but good luck. It it's not it's not a fun thing to do.
0: And there's, uh, so if we know that this anonymity is out the window, uh, we know that there's no way around this. Regardless of your personal feelings or your ideological bent, the fact of the matter is that several large telecoms have, not all the time, but have in the past actively worked to hamper, uh, what consumers want. Part of this is, is lobbying, right?
2: Yeah, they they lobby to prevent all kinds of follow through on infrastructure updating. So we can't have faster access to the Internet. Uh, Comcast is one of the biggest lobbying groups in terms of cost, how much money they spend. Mm-hmm. Only beaten by Northrop Grumman, the defense contractor.
0: So and we've already talked about the legislating against uh, communities. Now, at the time of this recording, this is one of the things we wanted to hold for a second. At the time of this recording, it is true. Uh, Matt, for the very first time in the lifetime of our show, you and I are doing an episode about something that we, we haven't really read. We've read news stories about it.
2: Yeah, but those people writing those news stories, guess what? They haven't read it either.
0: That's because... The big FCC agreement that happened on February 26th of 2015 is called the Open Internet Order. And at the time of this recording, ladies and gentlemen, the Open Internet Order, all 300 pages of it, is not available to the public.
2: One last time. The Open Internet Order is not available for public reading.
0: Now, that might change. I hope it does. But maybe pick a different name <laughs> yeah. when you're gonna do stuff like that. So, so here's the thing. Here's the thing about all this stuff. Now I know it sounds like we are taking shots at everybody, but we haven't said to our knowledge anything about these companies or these governments that is untrue, right? Yeah. Uh, the, here's, here's one of the weird things though. As much as people love to vilify these uh, larger companies, right? Everybody loves an underdog. Everybody hates Mm -hmm. a big faceless company, right? But the corporations, Matt, they couldn't have had these sweetheart lobbying deals unless they worked with, wait, oh, the big opponent in the debate, the government. And furthermore –
2: The government couldn't have done all this crazy, spooky Orwellian, let's look into everybody's phones thing if they didn't work directly with corporations and other ISPs to, you know, (laughs) to figure out how to do it and to gather all this information.
0: Right. Like those old AT&T switch rooms uh, that we hear about. And so so this is a good question, like. Are there really two sides here, considering that Wheeler, the current FCC chairman who put this through, uh, came from a lobbyist position? Uh, there is a revolving door here. Uh, so if that is all true, if if these people that are being portrayed as ideological opponents, big government versus big business, if the teams they're rooting for are so closely cooperating... Then what's going on here? Like, what what would net neutrality actually do, or excuse me, open internet?
2: Well, in in theory, it would allow society, humans uh, in general, to take advantage of this pretty badass technology that the internet is without the powerful muddying things up, and it would it pretty much allow you to talk t- and talk to and instantly access information with someone across the globe or even somebody who's up there in near-Earth orbit, mm-hmm. just at any time. In in theory, if the Internet was open, you could use it to talk to anyone or access anything at any time.
0: Now, here's one of the things that people don't often bring up, which is, you know, although we can vilify ISPs, uh, they are the reason that those things are working yeah. the way they are now, and it would cost money to maintain things, right? I think a fi- every time a fiber-optic cable is uh, busted somewhere in the ocean. Entire countries can lose internet access.
2: Yeah. Well, and you gotta, yes, I think that's a really great point that is lost on me many of the times. It's that these corporations spent crap loads of money to make sure it works. Now, there's a lot of taxpayer money in there too, right? There's a lot of taxpayer money, but these corporations went out and they did it. And I don't give them, uh, those corporations the benefit of that fact very often. Well,
0: this net neutrality thing—it stops what John Oliver, who had a great piece on this in last week tonight, it stops what he calls cable company—we'll paraphrase and say shenanigans. uh, (laughs) Okay, (laughs) in exchange for giving the FCC the power to decide what it considers reasonable remember that word reasonable reasonable what is a reasonable interpretation of the word reasonable that's uh, the that's the tautology that is as restricted so that's much the infinite loop it sure is it's an Ouroboros all its own um so these are some of the things we know and we wanted to ask you all a question that i just want to put in your heads right now uh what what is the relationship here is is this open internet order uh, which we will publicize if we can find a copy to read. Is the open Internet order um, a good thing for people, a good thing for government, a good thing for business? Are these forces really opposed? You know, what's what's the real story? We want to know what you think the stuff they don't want you to know about the Internet is. And now one of our favorite parts of the show, where we uh, just talk about the future.
2: Yes, the future, the great Orwellian future of an open internet that can, that the government can see into at all times and every part of it.
0: Which again, I feel like that's already happened. And this is just uh, my too. opinion.
2: Me too. I think the internet at some point, it's going to be that, it really is the lifeblood of commerce now, mm-hmm. the internet. It's, it's, the way that we access almost everything, and if we don't, if humans don't have access to it uh-huh. uh, cheaply and uh, a very strong signal, hmm. then I think we fail as a society. We will fail in the future. So I think eventually this act, I think, will maybe change a couple of things, but this isn't going to be, you know, the cure-all pill that's right. going no to make the Internet open, truly open. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it will happen in the future. But when it does happen, it's going to be so controlled by whatever governmental entity that exists at that time—the the most powerful global one—that it's gonna <laughs> be—it's gonna be this uh, pretty dark thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's—I'm really interested to see how this changes and how that movie Hackers from uh-huh. way back in the day becomes more of a reality with this weird underclass of people who just hack the internet and fight back against these powers.
0: Yeah. I'm interested to see this too. Now, a lot of, in a lot of ways, some of that is already happening. Yeah. You look at anonymous. Sure. Um, I, I think one of the, the great social experiments of our time is going to be, uh, applying psychological manipulation on mass scales. Like the idea of propaganda is, it is changing fundamentally. Um, this is a little bit, aside from the point about net neutrality, but the scary thing that happens possibly is that if a group, your hypothetical most uh, powerful force, mm-hmm. if that group, whether a company or a government, uh, garners enough influence, uh, I think there will be a social experiment where we'll move from the age where authorities tried to control people into the age where authorities taught people to control themselves, which is a frightening thing. And when I say control themselves, I don't mean, like, not urinate in public. You know exactly what I mean. Yeah, I do. And it
2: feels like we're in that way, brave new world. Nice,
0: nice. Nice. Well, uh you know what that music means, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh it is time for us to uh check out here. Hopefully we will be back at the same bat time, same bat channel. Or we should say mat time.
2: Yes, and <laughs> Ben channel.
0: <laughs> there we go. I don't know, it loses something with the Ben added in there. We want to know what you think. So hit us up while you still can on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our website, stuff they you where you can see everything we've ever done, maybe a few exceptions. And we want to know, what, what do you think? Is the, I'll, I'll be honest, I think the idea of net neutrality overall is, is a good thing. And I think that because a lot of the stuff that opponents of this, of this order are saying already happened. There's no point in pretending that the US government does not already have vast monitoring and uh, capabilities. I don't know about censorship. That's something I'd love to ask about. And
2: state governments throughout the world have that already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, and, uh, we have to remember that the the internet is global. And it's it really is this world thing, right? And we sometimes because we're dealing with it here in our US courts that we think that it's a US-centric thing.
0: Uh, maybe, classic maybe
2: American. We got the blinders on, uh, but maybe. it's a much bigger issue.
0: Mm-hmm. So we want to know uh, where you think the Internet is headed in the future, not just in the United States, but in the world and uh, beyond. I, uh, yeah. I guess it's fair to say, you know, people in space use the Internet, so technically it's beyond. Some folks will be heading to Mars pretty soon. And uh, they're going to need yeah, something. I hope so. I hope those people actually do head to Mars. And that is a podcast, my friend, for another day. In the meantime, uh, if you don't want to do the social media rigmarole, you can send us an email directly. We are
2: conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. For more on this topic and other unexplained phenomena, visit youtube.com slash conspiracy stuff. You can also get in touch on Twitter
1: at the handle at conspiracy stuff.